นะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะบุตรังธรรมังสังฆังนามะสามีAnd the uh, the habits of mind, the per- the perceptions that we have of ourselves and and of our practice, and uh, and what it means to be on retreat, and what it means to be uh, undertaking the the practice ourselves, um, whatever our situation, these are things that can become. Uh, at first, it's all very fresh and new, and like anything, uh, becomes. A habit, and and that's not, it's not wrong. It's just the way the mind works, and our task then is to bring awareness to, to how it actually is for us, in the present moment all the time. So just noticing what the whatever the perception is, you know, Tuesday night, or spring, or second day of the retreat. Or, you know, I'm 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 finally here on retreat. I've been waiting for this, and it's not going quite the way I was hoping. Or, you know, it's going to end. Oh no, it's going to end soon. Or, God, when is it going to end? I can't wait till it ends. And maybe one, and then the other, and then the other, and then the one. And we get a chance. Those of us who are on on uh, on the retreat here. To put aside everything and and just keep watching and just keep learning from the movement of our own minds, and we do walking meditation. We learn from the movement of our bodies. The mind and the body is useful to to make us uh, to, to sort of separate them as we learn and and uh, learn to um, discern the. The reality of our life, the reality of our experience. So, seeing the body as the body and the mind as the mind can be useful. Nama rupa is the Pali. 
and yet in the same at the same time in this in in the end it's it's all one experience that we're aware of there there are physical sensations that we we designate as physical there's mental perceptions mental sensations that we designate as mental and yet in the end there there is what we're aware of whether it's body or mind whether it's inside or out past or future there's what we're aware of and then there's there's the awareness itself that which that which knows and so such and Suchita has been so skillfully um, touching into and, and, uh, and presenting so beautifully the the ways that we approach our body mind experience however it is in this moment the the how of it the um, where we're coming from and and how we come into this moment is 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 more important in in when we're uh, cultivating our practice than 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 the what than what it is we're experiencing how we feel what we're thinking how it is all of that might be pleasant might be unpleasant might be a mix it might be inspiring it might be disappointing there'll be a certain emotional tone always present whether aware we're aware of it or not and yet it it is really just what it is and our task comes into the the balance that we can bring in in practicing with it that is the awareness that we have of it and balance is is a good word to use i've found you know because the there are so many different aspects to practice and we can go we can get absorbed um, in one direction or another and yet as ajahn suchito was speaking about last night the five indriya or five faculties are a very good framework uh, touch points to 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 continue to keep an eye on in the sense that uh, maintaining a balance is something that we can rest on. We can uh, find a refuge in our own practice where we can trust ourselves to be able to use whatever's happening and however we are in a way which is going to be a benefit, which is going to, to help to further along the way um, along the path even if it doesn't feel that way even if it, feel, if it feels rotten if it feels like we're going backwards you know, if my mind is if I think that I want to be calm and concentrated because I'm on a retreat and I sit down and I find that actually I'm thinking about what is that strange hum it's supposed to be quiet and yet they've put some noise-making machine that's humming to the left and watch my mind react and then and then notice how my mind gets used to it and starts to enjoy the hum oh ah actually that's quite nice it's com- comforting 
It helps. They were right. And then the stillness and my mind going back thinking, well, no, but it, there's a vibration there and, and, uh, and on and on and on. All of us have the ways that we will get caught in our thinking. It might be the person next to us making too much noise or looking the wrong way. It might be someone we, we, we really uh, get fascinated with in one way or another. Maybe ourselves, stories from the past, the past week, ten years ago. We all know how we can get absorbed. So whatever our mind is doing, it can feel like that's the measure of, of success. That's the measure of how the retreat's going. You know, oh, here I am and I'm not calm. Oh. Here I am, and I'm not concentrated. Here we are practicing quiet concentration and mindfulness, and I'm not mindful, and I'm not concentrated. At least I'm quiet. And it's very easy to forget that the what is not the point. It's not that it's not important. You know, we are working with trying to uh, skillfully quieten our minds down through setting up the right conditions and acting in the right way. But if my mind is, is actually busy, whether I want it to be or not, that's not a problem, it's not an obstacle, it's not a measure of failure in my practice. That's just simply my mind state at this moment. And the practice then is to stay with the awareness of the mind state rather than be absorbed in it, as always knowing the busy mind as the busy mind, knowing the quiet mind as the quiet mind, knowing the painful body as the painful body, knowing the calm and pleasant body as the calm and pleasant body. If we're staying with the knowing, whatever we're feeling and experiencing, then we start more and more to see how our minds move in relation to what's happening. And we see how, you know, sometimes the same sensation, you know, that, that white noise machine, or whatever it is, sometimes it's really pleasant, and sometimes it's annoying. And it's actually just the same sound, isn't it? So where's the pleasant? Where's the annoying? Where is that coming from? And I get a chance to see that it, the white noise machine is not doing anything at all. It's just being, it's white noise. I'm the one creating pleasant and unpleasant, annoying, not annoying. And I want to see that. So if, I, if all of us coming into the practice, we're coming from different angles and, and we may have different goals. And at the same time, the, the Buddha was interested in offering us the opportunity to see that there is a, 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 a goal to, uh, to choose to take up in a human life where we're not just simply trying to get what we want or get what we'd like to have or, or even make the world the way we think it should be or would like it to be. Not to try to just feel the way we'd like to feel, 
but to truly free ourselves from that which makes us suffer. You know, to find a, a, the, the freedom of not needing things to be any particular way. And that, that sounds, doesn't sound very exciting. The happiness of not needing. It sounds almost selfish. It's like, I don't care about you. You go on and suffer yourself, but I don't need anything at all. But that's just the way it can sound if we say it to ourselves or others say it. For those of us, probably everyone in this room to some degree or other in some way has tasted the kind of peace that can come from doing something as seemingly, you know, to much of the world, it's a kind of strange thing we're doing, sitting here in this room, cross-legged. I mean, you're listening to me saying something now, so that makes sense, but most of this day we've just been sitting here, cross-legged, doing nothing, right? And then every once in a while somebody says, watch your breath. And don't talk, don't talk, this is all very important, we just sit here. And then we walk back and forth and back and forth, and then we sit here. I don't know what a lot of people would make of it. I remember when I came first to this center, when I first got interested, and later on I heard one of my school friends, you know, they were talking about, well, so what is he doing, you know, going to this meditation center? And the other one answered, well, I don't know, I guess he just likes to sit with his eyes closed. Like, total nonsensical thing to be doing. Or I suppose people think that perhaps we're, we're just creating religious fantasies. Buddhists meditating whatever that might mean. Well, it's changing, of course, as we all know. Mindfulness is, is a, a, a catchword that you're, you'll find in the papers, and it's really making its way in, into society. The, the NHS in, in, in Britain, the National Health Service, is paying for people to treat their depression through mindfulness, meditation, and, and uh, it's really making its way into society as something which is... Um, obviously useful. It's even making its way into the military, unbelievably. But it, it's, there's the level of meditation and practice where it's seen as, as, as a functional aid to helping to clear the mind and making oneself more efficient in what one does. And then there's the, the level at which the Buddha intended to, to offer to us, which is the opportunity to be profoundly free from our own identity, our own, from the world itself, in a sense. And free from the world in a way which does not necessitate our leaving the world, even though some of us choose to enter monasteries and, and do this sort of traditional, in quotes, leaving the world as a, as a training of the heart. In the end, we're all in the, in the world, always. And, and so the, the uh, practices that we take up to support the heart's release are ones which, yes, they, they uh, encourage us to put down that which uh, traps us. And because it's so easy to get trapped, even though the... Uh, 
the trap is really inside, in the heart. It's not on the outside. It's nevertheless uh, extremely helpful for us to do things on the outside which support that, which remind us and which help us see when we're when we've lost it, when we've become our thoughts and feelings, rather than staying with the mind which is free. And so we come to a retreat center and we do a nine-day retreat or an eight-day retreat, or we go to a monastery and we do a lifetime of bowing and chanting and wearing robes. But all of these things, you know, they're, they're, they're in a way, they're, they're artificial, not in a, not in a, um, any kind of demeaning uh, or diminishing sense, but artificial in a sense of, okay, we, we're just, we're creating this structure in order to help us do something which is essentially internal, it's in the heart, and which is a, a natural process. And yet won't happen unless we, we have help. There's very few of us who have the kind of kamma that the Buddha did, where we don't, where we can kind of just do it on our own. So we need communities of people who are also interested in this path of practice, which goes against the grain of habit, against the grain of the habit of our perception, habit of our emotions, our attachments. Uh, We need help in that. And so we create these uh, communities where we sit together, we practice together, we consider the teachings together. And in that way we help remind each other. And not often it's not even directly, just the fact of living with others who are also practicing helps us see ourselves better. I'm sure all of us to some extent have seen that, and that's certainly been my experience at the monastery, where a lot of it is just about having a mirror created so that I can see myself better. And that's one reason why, you know, you make it so that everything's the same. Everybody basically has the same kind of bowl, basically wears the same kind of robes. There are little subtle differences and then you learn to, you learn how your mind moves and sees, oh, that monk's color robe is really excellent. I wish my robe. We're supposed to give up all of the consideration of fashion and color. And yeah, I don't know how many hours I've spent thinking, how can I get that deep red rusty color? And my robe's the kind of greeny, non, you know, that you start to learn where the good practice monasteries, they have the, the Genkanun Dai, where you, you kind of wash the robes. You, you, we make our own robes generally. Um, in our communities, and, and um, in Thailand, you'll start out with white cloth, and then um, and then you'll initially dye them by creating a dye uh, from the um, heartwood of of the jackfruit tree, and um, and boiling it up. It's a long process; it takes a long time. Often, a few monks will do it together and sort of stay up all night, because you still have the duties of the monastery to do that during the day, and be boiling the stuff down, boiling it down to get the dye, and then you'll dye it. And then it'll be a sort of light, sort of um, yellow color. I think somewhere, actually I'm not sure about this, but anyway, uh, one monk said, the Buddha said that the color was like uh, baby's diarrhea. 
you sort of it's not supposed to be attractive looking but uh, but then as you as you have the the robe it's uh, it's sort of astringent the genkanun dye so it it works as a soap and then actual soaps don't work well with it so you're not actually supposed to wash your robe in soap um and that's interesting because in the hot season in Thailand you're really perspiring a lot. And every week there'll be the the day before the, the 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 full moon day, it'll be robe washing day. And so the fires are lit and then the the wood is that's been chopped by monks throughout the week will be boiled up and then you'll know after the meal when you've done all the kind of public stuff then you go out to the dyeing shed and you and you wash your robes in this boiling hot water and, and, and every week it gets a little darker and a little darker and a little darker and so the really dark rich ones are the like old robes that have been around a while and you start to find your mind desiring. It's like, you know, you've given up all clothes, you've given up all these things and then you're you're sitting here, oh man, look at that monk's robe. <laughs> and you watch your mind do everything it would do outside of the robes and outside of the monastery. But now that you're in the monastery and you have these, these art, sort of artificial structures, you've decided by communal agreement and by tradition, the Buddha laid it down, so okay, it's like this, do it this way. You've got these, these things around you as a mirror so you can see your own mind. Whereas if I were still, um, whereas if I weren't a monk, I could justify this. I could, I could think, you know, oh yeah, that is a nice, you know, jersey and... And then I'd know, you know, I'd have, we all, I'm sure everybody here, we have our own ideals. Oh no, I'm a Buddhist. And I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm letting go of all of that. And so I don't care about clothes and fashion and this and that. But if you look closely, you know, the mind does still care about this and that. It might not be the same this and that as it used to be. But it goes underground and starts finding other thises and thats. So the renunciation precepts that a lot of people often don't understand, and not just the, the monastic precepts for monks and nuns, but like the eight precepts we have here. So there's the five that are the sort of moral, ethical principles, but then there's the extra, the extra ones on top of that, eating, not eating at inappropriate times. Inappropriate times, that's an interesting concept, isn't it? And not, you know, having entertainment, not singing, not dancing, not beautifying and not sleeping on high and luxurious places. Well, there's nothing immoral about sleeping on a high and luxurious place, and there's nothing immoral about dancing or singing or wearing, you know, uh, jewelry or anything else. There's nothing, certainly nothing immoral about eating in the evening. So there, those are renunciatory precepts that we sort of voluntarily take on on the one hand, to, to help to simplify things. It is you know more simple if you're just eating at one time of the day and not at the other time of the day. There's less dishwashing to do, less digesting to do. But also, it's uh, in order to help to dial up the pressure, to kind of make it a little bit difficult in a way that will allow us if we continue to practice, to watch ourselves, to see 
how our minds move, you know, to sort of make a, a container and we get to see when we press against the edges of the container. And if we didn't have that container, then we wouldn't necessarily see it. Almost like if you're in the ocean and the tide is bringing you down the beach, you might not notice it if you're far out. But if you've got some sort of something anchored there, then you'll know, oh wait, I'm kind of, I'm actually moving. Didn't know that I was moving. Isn't that interesting? There are these things pulling me or pushing me. So if I'm interested now that I've taken up Buddhist practice in in seeing that which makes me suffer, the way that my own mind moves me, pushes me and pulls me around all the time, and I've had glimpses that that's what's going on, and so I get interested in meditation and, and practice in general. Well, then renunciate, renunciation precepts start to make sense as a way to help me see what's there. It could be arbitrary. It could be not, you know, it could be not eating in the mornings and only eating in the evenings, or, you know, it could be, um, I don't know. It's uh, there. There, you could you can make up your own sort of not having not having something that you generally like for two weeks and just say, right, you know, I won't have any uh, croissant for two weeks or whatever it is. You know, maybe that's probably not very difficult for most of us, but uh, dessert in general or maybe that's easy for some people. It's, you know, it's just taking something, not as a self-punishment, not because pleasure is bad and you must run from it but because you want to start to see you know what happens to my mind when I take away the things that I'm normally sort of just going into that I'm using as a support sometimes it'll get restless sometimes it'll get sleepy sometimes it'll get angry sometimes it'll get indulgent in other things that's generally what happens in the monasteries well actually all of those things happen in the monasteries (laughs) But you do find that you know the one meal becomes a much, much, much bigger deal than it ever used to be. Before you gave up all this caring about food, suddenly you care about food more than you ever did, because you can't choose and you can't go to the fridge, you know, whenever you want, and that's it. And so here it comes, and wow, can take years for that to settle down. And it's not because, you know, we're, it's not a, it's not a, you, what we learn is because all of us go through this, is it's not, it's not a, um, a judgment upon us. It's something that, that's the way the mind works. And here we are together and we want to see this and we'll support each other, you know, with, with, with metta rather than, you know, judging, oh, you know, he's a greedy one, look at him. And so that, that's something that we can all do here too on the retreat. Because we'll see our minds move and say, you know, how can she take so many Brussels, you know, uh, sprouts or whatever it is that we want? <laughs> or, you know, the, this, the, whatever it might be. It often comes up around the, the, the little, when we take things away, okay, now you can't eat in the evenings and we can't eat whenever you want, so you just have the meal. So your, the intensity will come up around that. And just watch, just see it. Use it as an experiment. See as a mirror for yourself. See what happens to your mind. Maybe you get annoyed at other people. Maybe you get annoyed at yourself. Maybe you get 
greedy, maybe you get angry, maybe you get sleepy, maybe you want to just avoid the whole thing and fast. Just notice. And Ajahn Chah really encouraged the monks, Ajahn Sumedha as well, and, and, and others over the, the years in our monasteries, you know, not to try to make special practices for oneself to, to uh, achieve special results. I mean, that can be sometimes useful at certain points, but generally, just to take life as it was in, in all of its ordinariness and use that as the fodder, the context for your practice. And against that, then you see, you know, if your mind feels it's too ordinary, it's too boring, it's not going anyplace. Well, that's interesting. Look what my mind's doing right now. This isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. It needs to be different. And that's what you want to see. It's working. You know, you get this palette, which is intentionally bland and routine and boring. You know, Boring is good. Not to feel bored, not the emotion of boredom, but what we would normally think of as boring. Not fascinating, just day after day, same thing again and again, is actually a really good support for starting to see the mind as the mind, feelings as feelings, thoughts as thoughts, because we get to see them change. You know, it's the same. Same thing, and yet, my experience of it today is very different than it was last week. So using the different capacities that we have to create a sense of practice all the time, a sense of balance with keeping the practice going, not not just at the times that we're in the meditation hall or, or sitting formally, and not that just at the times that we're doing our walking meditation, but as much as possible all the time. And so for that we've got to find a way of doing it where it's not, where it's, where it's doable, where it's not intense. You know, we can't just kind of keep an effort going with willpower all of the time. We won't be able to manage that. So we've got to find, we've got to base our practice in a, an, an energy which is, which is self-sustaining, which is already there. Like Ajahn Suchita was saying in his earlier talk, you know, just not, not the energy that comes from doing, but when we, we settle into the mind and body, learn how to be skillfully with what is already here, there's an energy there that we can tune into. And if we, if we find a balance with that, using mindfulness and our concentration practice and our observation, our aspiration, you know, and just take the present moment always as our stuff of practice rather than any particular experience or insight or achievement that we imagine, but just this, and now, just this, and now, just this, then it can become possible to really have a deep practice which is not reliant on feeling any particular way, even our minds being in any particular mind state. They can be quite busy, but if we're able to be aware 
mindful of this is busy mind now. This is what it's like. This is what it feels like. And rest come from this place of, of you know, interest in using this for practice. Don't need to get anywhere with it. Just know it for what it is. See the mind move. Then we can, we can always practice. It's a matter of finding ways to remember, to keep it consistent, rather than trying to generate an intensity and maintain a certain state. So then whatever state that we're, we're in can be used. doesn't mean that intense states aren't useful. Sometimes they are. At certain points in the practice they'll be necessary. And yet the fundamental you know, the fundamental uh, attitude, orientation, philosophy, insight of it's not what I'm experiencing, it's, it, it's how I am with what I'm experiencing. This is something, you know, I found that it's, it's really necessary to remember, find a way to, to remember. Because it's so easy to forget, it's so easy to fall into the old assumption of, you know, I need to be the way I think I need to be. Even if I've heard all of this before and I've known all of this before, it goes right back into that again. So finding some way of, of keeping it consistent. And I think Ajahn Chah, I, I wasn't around when Ajahn Chah was teaching, but from his, what I've heard of his disciples, he would really make a point of, of saying that the practice should be even, should be consistent, and, and that what he meant by that was that it wasn't just the times that we were in formal meditation practice. It was all the time, so that when you wake up, you establish a, you know, your intention, your aspiration for you know, how you want to use the stuff of your life today, that's a perception, the future today, but in this moment, and just as much as possible, keep trying to stay with that, come back to that, use that as the, the reference point. And then not worry how it's going, not worry if, if it seems to be a good day for practice, outside or inside. But, you know, when it's, you would say when it's, um, when you feel like Meditating, meditate. And when you don't feel like meditating, meditate. <laughs> just, just keep it, keep it going. And, and if we try to do that, like we will find, then you can't, you can't do it with willpower. It's not a, it's not a heroic strength-based thing. It's something that we, we do through, through letting go, through releasing, through relaxing, having to learn how to let go around that which we're tensing. That includes, you know, my idea of my practice. My idea of who I am and how I need to be. Just know what that is right now and relax around it. So that it, it can become fun. You know, something we really can do, even if it's not fun. If not fun to experience unpleasant emotions or unpleasant sensations. But at least... It's fun, well, for me, in the sense that you can just, you really can just allow life now to be practice, whatever it's going to be. It doesn't have to be 
the way I thought it was going to have to be. It doesn't have to be the way I want it to be. It doesn't have to be the way so-and-so thinks it should be. It's just as it is, and it's fine. It's totally all right as it is, and I can use that. I can continue to use it by staying with, staying with, staying with the present moment. And that's the point of balance for me, is that always it's present moment. I mean, probably many of us have seen for ourselves in our meditation how, you know, the past is an idea or a set of ideas happening right now. We get a we get an insight into oh, yeah, all that stuff that I'm carrying about yesterday or last week or last year. Oh yeah, it's, this is this is just right in here, and the birds are chirping outside. It's just all in here. It's it's a perception. It's thought. That's the past always, and the future always is right now. Thought, and if we start to use the present moment as our point of balance. And seeing past as thought, future as thought, it doesn't mean that we abandon them. We have to. It's, we, need, we need the past and future uh, to be functional human beings. But seeing past for what it is and seeing future for what it is, which is a phenomenon happening right now in the present moment. You know, my past, I've, I've been watching, you know, so last year, Various things happened, and um, and it's always a different past, slightly. You know, it's never the same. Last year is never the same. When I notice it, and ten years ago has been, it's very different now than it used to be. <laughs> Even this morning, right? And start to notice how much of what re- what I experience as the world the world in the past and the world in the future has to do with my emotional content right now and has to do with all kinds of other factors. And you, Just through observation, having enough concentration and, and balance to see that change, you really can see that this whole idea of, of, of solidity, a solid world and a solid me traveling through the world from past to the future, all of this is, is not sure. It's not stable. And that can be threatening. So we have the refuges and the the precepts, not as sort of, you know, basic Buddhism that, you know, you're sort of just supposed to start out with because it's a good thing to do, but because it really is a place of safety. You know, we, we, we if we if we've grounded ourselves in ethical action, intentional ethical action, then we, we learn to trust ourselves. And we know that we can, you know, allow the world to get a little less, a little less solid, because we trust ourselves. And with a refuge in the Buddha and the Tamma and the Sangha, when that becomes more than just an idea of a, of a historical figure and conceptual teachings, you know, and, and uh, people in robes or in, you know, med- meditating and... Uh, different people have different ideas of sangha these days, but the Arya sangha, the, those those who are enlightened, when we start to internalize refuge, especially Buddha, then that's something we can trust and and rest in, you know, fall back on, 
And so the Buddha is that which knows the Dhamma, you could say. These are all just ways of using language to reflect. And different people, different teachers will use sometimes the same words in different ways. But in terms of that, that basic orientation of remembering to, that it's not what I'm experiencing, it's, it's, what, it's what knows. It's, it's how I am with. And even more than that, in terms of refuge, it's what is it that knows what I'm experiencing? There's, there's this, and there's the awareness of this. And refuge can be staying with that knowing, that awareness. Using the teachings as a, as, a, as, as a framework, a constant reference point and guidelines to help us know how to be with. And it and we learn then our own tendencies. We learn our the challenges that we have. And for many of us these days, in this oh so intolerant world, there's a lot of judging going on. There's a lot of there's a lot of uh, finger wagging. There's an inner tyrant which is very strong. And so remembering that however we're practicing, you know, the, the, where we're coming from is in line with Dhamma when it's coming from a place of care and compassion, of, of loving kindness. I really like the phrase that Ajahn Suchito used the other night of uh, being a grandmother to yourself, where you're basically you know, really being very tolerant because we're going to get it wrong again and again and again and again and again and again. And that's to be expected. It's like training a puppy to sit. You just have to, you know, you don't expect the puppy to sit. When the first time you just say sit and you put the put its bum on the ground, it maybe looks at you for half a second with its tongue out and then bounds off again. So you bring it back. And looks at you and then you say, sit, put it down on the ground. And then you have to go through this and you know that if you, if you start yelling and screaming and hitting the puppy, you're just going to end up with a terribly neurotic dog. And if we do that to ourselves as well, then that's what we end up with. So we've got to, you know, I find I, I have to remember the importance of of, you know, just being very gentle and kind and tolerant with making mistakes and just doing the best one can and yet not losing sight of what we're doing and why. So not holding too tightly, not coming from a place of, of uh, like heroic idealism, not coming from a place of judgment, and yet still coming. Coming from finding that place of, of willingness, of kindness, of aspiration, of faith. And then taking this moment 
now. And it's just this moment. That's the gift, really, is that we don't have to practice any any more than just this, just this one moment now. You don't have to do, you don't have to practice for the whole retreat. You don't have to practice for the rest of your life. You don't have to practice even for the rest of this evening. All you have to do is practice just right now. And then again and again, just letting go and starting with that, letting go and and being with that. And it can be light then. It doesn't have to be heavy. And, And then it's the persistence you know, the, the kind of con- con- continuation that becomes important. Again, not so much what we're experiencing and how we feel ourselves to be. Just the willingness and the faith to continue. And then continuing. And we all help each other to do that by coming to the sittings together or by you know, just being, you know, respecting the guidelines of the retreat. So I'm really getting used to these white noise machines. Kind of liking them now. The temperature, you know, just notice what what it, what is it that you know right now, what is it that's what is it where is the suffering? And then just allow yourself to relax around that and be with that and see. You know, it's not so much it's actually good if you get yourself poked by something. That was Sajin Chah's method of practice, so, so I hear. Making people suffer. <laughs> but not in a sadistic way, of course. But in a way which is, you know, he said it's the suffering that leads to the end of suffering. Because it was one with awareness and a knowledge of how to practice with it. And it did, I think they, somebody once asked him, how, what, what is your... Because he didn't have, I mean, you may have noticed, even on this retreat, in our tradition, it's kind of fuzzy in some ways. There's no sort of technique that, okay, day one, this is what you do. Step one, you do this, and then now step two. And so people asked Ajahn Chah, you know, what what is your method of practice? What is your technique? Because he would tell one monk one thing, and then he'd tell the next monk a totally opposite thing to do. And and he said, my technique is torture. It's probably said torture the kilesas, toraman kile, which means torture the hin- the the the, the uh, uh, obstructions, greed, hatred, and delusion, in all their many expressions. Those basic forces, and so he'd make the monks sit when they didn't want to sit, make them work when they didn't want to work, and all of that, because it can be helpful for your practice to suffer if you know how to work with watching the mind to get to the root of, well, what is it really that's making me suffer? So that person with the nylon trousers that kind of disturbs your meditation or the, the sound or the, the smell or the, or the sensation, whatever it is, if it's uncomfortable, good, you have an opportunity. It's like being a forest monk or nun. All of us, you know, we can use these things as a way to find out, well, where is peace? Even if the thing goes away and resolves itself, that'll be more comfortable, yes. And then we have peace for a little while, 
until it comes back again or something else comes. In the end, we have to find a way of finding the kind of peace that doesn't rely on you know, the absence of the unpleasant. And yet, the trick uh, is to do it with kindness so that we're not doing, you know, we're not punishing ourselves. So it's a balance for everyone. For one person, more of this will be helpful. For another person, none of it is helpful, you know, at this point. So everyone has different needs and a different uh, makeup and, and emotional disposition, and different kamma. And, and yet the principles are the same for all of us. We are, as they say in Thailand, brothers and sisters in suffering. which is uh, actually a cheerful thing. (laughs) When they say it, it's not supposed to be miserable. Because it's like like we're all in this together. We're not alone. Even though in the end, we, we have to find our own way.